Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And on this month's episode, we're going to be talking about children's media and body image, as well as some media interventions aimed at promoting body confidence in young children. It actually follows on very nicely from our back to school episode last month. It does indeed, Nadia. Yeah, and last time we highlighted why we should think about body image and the need to celebrate all different types of diverse appearances among primary school age children. So remember that was four to 11 years in the UK. And we also heard from a primary school teacher, Emily, and she gave us her thoughts on that. Super. And as we always say on the podcast, we recommend you should go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. But you'll notice if you did, we did touch on some of the research on body image interventions aimed at this age group. So children aged four to 11, roughly, as Jade said. But today we're going to go into the research a little deeper with some of our colleagues at CAR, Dr. Emily Matheson and Harriet Smith. Looking forward to it. Let's get started. Great. So as we mentioned last time, children as young as three start showing signs of weight bias. So what we mean by that is that they start to express negative attitudes towards larger bodies. Exactly. And like we mentioned, we discussed this a little bit in the last episode related to my research with um, colleagues, uh, Amy Slater and Heidi Williamson at CAR. As well as negative attitudes young children might have towards others in larger bodies, they also can be quite negative behaviourally towards them, so less likely to choose a larger character as a best friend, to invite them around their house. So there's two elements there. There's the negative attitudes children might have towards larger individuals, and then behaviourally how that, that might impact them and how they might single them out. That's great. It's really good to to capture the two. So the attitudes, thinking that that child might be mean, those common negative stereotypes that we see towards people of higher weight so that they might be mean they might be lazy they might be unfriendly less popular all of those things so and then that behavioral element too so then what we see by the time children reach the age of five or six we start to see they internalize appearance-based attitudes towards their own body and start to express body dissatisfaction normally by indicating a desire to be thinner Yeah, and you might not be surprised to hear that this desire to be thinner is more common in girls than boys. And research led by Dr. Stephanie Damiano found that this desire to be thinner at the age, like Nadia said, of five to six in girls is already associated with dietary restraint. And for example, that's like reporting that they're not going to eat X or Y because they're scared and have fear of getting fat. Right. And digging into that study a little bit more, Steph and colleagues found that approximately a third of five-year-old girls reported dietary restraint. And dietary restraint was correlated with weight bias favouring thinner bodies, so preferring thinner bodies. It was associated with greater internalisation of the thin ideal, as well as media exposure and appearance conversations with peers. And interestingly, media exposure, so the topic of today's episode, as well as appearance conversations, were the strongest predictors of dietary restraint. A quick caveat or a bit of nuance is just to to pass out the difference between dietary restraint and dietary restriction. They're not quite the same thing. Dietary restraint indicates the intent to eat less, whilst dietary restriction refers to actually eating less. A little nuance, but um, just to to point that out. But either way concerning, I think um, we would all agree. So Then I think bringing this all together, as we pointed out last time, 
The evidence really highlights that it's during childhood that body image develops. And what we mean by that is it's through this period of childhood that children are informing, they're gathering information from all of these different sources, from the media, from family, from from peers even, to how they think and feel about the way they look. Yeah, exactly. Like you say, so much is happening at such an early age. And as you mentioned last time, Nadia, Emily Lacroix's recent study, which she did with some of our colleagues at CAR, found that body image remained relatively stable through the ages of 11 to 15, with 60% of adolescents not having high body esteem at all. Right. And I think what this really shows is that most children, in this study at least, had already made up their mind about how they think and feel about the way their body looks. Yeah, and like you say, it really highlights that we need to be thinking about prevention efforts before they reach adolescent years. And that does bring us to the focus of this episode, so children's media. Right, so children's media, so TV, books, games, movies, that kind of thing, like traditional media aimed at adults, heavily promotes appearance ideals and stereotypes. Yeah, and... Children in the UK can spend up to 13 hours a week watching TV and between the ages of three to seven, TV is the most prominent media source where they get this information. So Disney is a real classic example of this where princesses are very slim, often white, feminine, long hair and princes are are slim and also muscular. You know, you get the picture. Then you have the other side, which is the baddies who have facial features that do not conform to cultural appearance ideals like a large nose, warts, facial burns and scars and they're often higher body weight. So if we think of Ursula for example and you know Scar from Lion King, they all represent those kind of appearances. And it's not just Disney. Groups of researchers have systematically analyzed children's media including popular TV shows and storybooks and findings are really consistent. Appearance ideals and stereotypes are common and exaggerated in children's media. And what we see, like in Disney, is that the protagonists are conventionally attractive, so have that ideal appearance, so slim for girls, lean and muscular for boys. And they also possess positive personality traits, so they're intelligent, they're sociable, they're popular. So we're starting to build up this association between the ideal appearance and all of these positive personality traits. While the the villains, the the bad guys, the less popular characters tend to not conform to these societal appearance standards and they also have less desirable personality traits. So they're evil, lazy, stupid. They're not someone who you want to be friends with. So we're building these associations very clearly in children's media. Definitely, yeah, building that picture up. And um, specifically related to weight, for example, we also tend to see characters in larger bodies eating a lot as a stereotype. Bruce Bogtrotter and Matilda is a classic example of this. Right, eating that chocolate cake. So we have, and Roald Dahl probably is another classic example in addition to, to Disney with some of these stereotypes. So, and, and thinking of Matilda, we have the slim, very feminine Miss Honey, and then we have the large, frightening Miss Trunchbull. So while I, I loved Roald Dahl as a kid, it's kind of problematic on the topic of appearance. I'm just starting to think about, yeah, so much um, books as well that link into the TV and media that's consumed of young children. That's, yeah, very interesting. I know. I'm also thinking of the Twits. Do you remember them? That was the first book I ever read. (laughs) I shudder now. (laughs) Yeah, well, there you go. 
And the point being, as, as we've said, is that repeatedly making these associations between appearance and personality or character is particularly unhelpful during childhood because this is a time when children are learning about the world through categorization. So it's before they've got the ability to think critically. They're thinking in black and white. They want to group people to be able to build up a picture of the world and, and what they need to know. So we need to really think about how powerful these stereotypes are during childhood and then think about what the cumulative impact of these messages are as well. Definitely. And, and to acknowledge that these categorizations that young children are doing are not even conscious. They're so implicit. And these, like, these characters provide these hidden meanings. They're not necessarily actively processing that. It's something that they don't even notice is happening. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Jade. And that's such an important point that it's subconscious. It's like it's really um, those messages are so subliminal, aren't they? Yeah. And like you say, because it's so subliminal, it almost holds more power because it's not even actively being processed. And on that note, we also then need to remember how important it is to have positive representation and how much that matters on a subliminal sense too. Right, so kind of going on the flip side of this conversation and the idea of positive representation always reminds me of the famous quote from the American activist for children's rights, Marion Wright Edelman, you can't be what you can't see. And then another strand to this conversation is something that's come up in the UK recently in reference to children's books. So in a study initiated by the Centre for Literacy and Primary Education, funded by Arts Council England, researchers found that only 4% of children's books published in the UK in 2017 featured a black, Asian or other ethnic minority character, and only 1% had a main character who was black or a person of colour. And then contrast this with the fact that almost a third of school children in the UK, based on the Department of Education stats, are black, Asian or from another ethnic minority background. Yeah, that's so stark. I, you can't, the listeners can't see it, but I'm shaking my head. And then if you actually consider that exposure to different people in a positive light can encourage empathy, acceptance and perspective taken in children, that's just even more shocking again. Right, so thinking about this from a couple of different ways, right? So thinking about it from the point of view of the child, it's so important to have that positive representation in children's media, but then also thinking about how they are with other people. So going back to the attitudes and behaviour towards others, if you have that positive representation, that can encourage positive attitudes and behaviours towards others as well. It's not even just about the child themselves. Yeah, so there's two elements there. There's first the how the child might view themselves in the medium, whether they're represented, which was al will also affect how they view their own appearance and their own body image. And then secondly, it's about how other groups and appearances are represented in the media that they're indulging in too, which also can affect their attitudes towards others and their appearances. So there's, there's the two sides of the coin there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really good segue for us to transition into talking about positive children's media in relation to body image and some of the really exciting work that's going on at CAR. Specifically, a couple of micro-intervention projects that some members of our team at CAR have worked on in partnership with the Dove Self-Esteem Project and Cartoon Network. Both interventions are based on the extremely popular Steven Universe series created by Rebecca Sugar. We're going to hear a lot more about these projects from Emily and Harriet. Before we do get on to today's guest, 
Dr. Emily Matheson, a senior research fellow here at CAR, and Harriet Smith, a research associate also at CAR, who are going to tell us about the research side of things. We want to play a short clip of the brilliant Rebecca Sugar, the award-winning creator of Steven Universe, speaking on a panel at Comic-Con in 2018 about Steven Universe and the Dove Partnership. I'm the creator of Steven Universe, and I'm also the executive producer. And uh, I've also been working on this series of shorts, uh, directing them and, and writing them, and recently wrote a song. Uh, so that's what brings us here today. Steven Universe really comes from, it, it's based on my younger brother, Steven. And so from the very beginning, I wanted to make something that had all the, me, me and my brother Steven we were like best friends growing up, and we would always watch uh, cartoons together, play video games together. And so I wanted to make something that had, it was a pastiche of everything that we loved to share together, but that was also grounded in the feeling of just the reality of our relationship to each other. Uh, and I think throughout all of it, even though we're making something that's a sci-fi fantasy action comedy slice of life everything, <laughs> uh, it's always going to be grounded in reality because it's always going to come back to that reality of my childhood, and then also to the childhoods of everyone on my staff. So one of our big goals from the beginning was to make sure that while we could do wildly outlandish things, the core of it was always some truth about our actual lives. I'm really interested in hearing about like how y'all got connected. Like, How did this partnership happen? Like, Rebecca, did you just call up Dove? Like, hey, I want to work with y'all. That's awesome. I like what you're doing here. Like, How did that come to be? It was actually many years ago that there was a uh, tour through the studio. It was the first time that something like this was mentioned, and I was uh, surprised that people had noticed that we were doing this with the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I had thought that this would be something, this was something that I really wanted to do in the realm of animation, um, and I knew that it would have been helpful to me as a child, but it didn't occur to me that anyone would, would notice. <laughs> uh, so uh, when it started to become a more serious possibility, I became excited because it would mean that I would have access to years and years of research um, and to people who had been working directly with children. And as much as I'd been writing from my own personal experience, same with the, the rest of the team on the show, all from our experience of what we really feel felt like we needed to hear, I was interested in knowing exactly what creates change immediately and make this work in the most effective way that I possibly could. Uh, so that was a really exciting prospect. And uh, as we do these shorts, there's a lot of back and forth. I know the characters very well, so I'm always uh, <laughs> making sure that it's their, truly their voices and I'm choosing who's in what subject, who's affected the most by it. Um, but then I get access to the kind of phrasing and that helps kids the most directly and the most quickly. Um, and it's been very helpful. Can I just um, chime in there as well about the the content? So um, Rebecca obviously brings it to life through the characters and it's really interesting we share scripts and I get to see what Rebecca writes and then um, add my comments without trying to butcher things um, from an academic point of view. Um, But the other thing is about... The, the kind of some of the key messages that are coming through in the shorts, they're not just random thoughts that have kind of popped up and um, what they're actually targeting are the risk factors or the key influences on young people's body image. So the fact that there is one on teasing and bullying, we know that appearance is the number one reason why children get bullied. Um, for me, it's kind of mind-blowing to combine this research of what we know 
are the key influences in trying to change them, then with the power and creativity of Re- Rebecca and the platform of Steven Universe, because as researchers we and psychologists, we have a really good understanding of how these things work in people's minds and what you need to do to change it. But what we're not good at is getting our thoughts um, and our work out there on a huge scale. And so it's been completely um, humbling and really, really exciting to work with Cartoon Network and Dub to get this out there to millions of people Uh, because normally in research it takes an average of 17 years when something is studied to actually see it translate into something that's actually going to influence society. And we're doing this in real time. Um, You know, and the music video was just launched yesterday and I don't even know what it's up to now, but I looked yesterday and there were 250,000 views just on YouTube, um, which up. Yeah, yeah. I knew I, I knew I'd be out of date, but that's just fantastic, and I think it shows the power when you partner um, like-minded people with shared values together, and it's a real honour to work on it. That's brilliant. It's fun to be able to include that. And long-term listeners of the podcast might recognise Philippa's voice there, Professor Philippa Diedrichs, talking about the magic of working and collaboration with brilliant partners with shared values to create real-world impact. Awesome. And to transition us into the interview with Emily and Harriet, we're going to play the song from the collaboration called We Deserve to Shine. We love it so much and we think you all deserve to shine. It's a lovely reminder. Enjoy. Yeah, love it. We're small, but we're strong. We're cool, but we're kind. And we deserve to shine. We're gritty and tough, we're smooth and refined, and we deserve to shine. (laughs) We'll figure it out. There's plenty of time for everybody and every mind. And every facet to finally find that we deserve to shine. Shine. Emily and Harriet, welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. Thank you for having us. Hi, Nadia. Thank you so much for having us. Awesome. So, before we get into things, I know you were both on our lockdown episode earlier this year, but this is really your official car podcast debut, I think, for a full featured episode. So, I thought what could be really fun is... Emily, if you could tell our listeners something about Harriet, and then Harriet, if you could tell us something about Emily, so we get to, you know, all get to know each other a little bit more. Of course. Well, Harriet and I have been working together for 18 months. I think we know each other inside out, especially (laughs) since lockdown has happened. Um, But one thing that most people might not know about Harriet is that she, on the side of being a kick-ass researcher, flips houses just for fun uh, and also has a little vintage store where she sells clothing. And so if anyone wants to see the cool work that she does with her fiancé, Alex, then go to her Instagram page, which is The Hawkins Home, and you can see all the fun decorating decisions that she makes on a daily basis. Um, Yeah, something that everyone should know about Harriet. So my favourite fact about Emily is, well, if you have the pleasure of working with Emily, you might know this, but she actually has her own language. 
um, what we call Emilyisms. She talks in sayings and she makes up random words. And honestly, it's so fun to work with her because of this. She makes, yeah, our working days a lot more fun. Um, so just a couple of my favourites are to have all of her ducks in a row, you know, everything in order. She loves that one. And another one of her favourites is throwing spaghetti at a wall. You know, when you're trying mm-hmm. to think of ideas and you're not sure which ones are good, you've just got to throw spaghetti at a wall. So, yeah, that's one of my favourite things about Emily. I think that's everyone it. says that. They are just common sayings. But you know what? The thing is, when I say either of those things now, I think of you because you say them so often. And I, I love that. I love that sharing. And I think because we do work so closely as a team, I think we get to know each other and all these like other little bits. Although I didn't know, Harriet, about the vintage clothing. Yeah, so I don't think many people really know that, but we've had it for quite a few years now. Um, yeah, it just sort of happened. Like one day we walked into a charity shop and I was like, oh, it'd be really cool like, if we could actually sell some of this stuff. Um, and yeah, it just sort of escalated from there. Um, but yeah, it's really fun. I really enjoy doing it. Oh, I love it. Learn something new. Anyway, I could talk about all of that for a long time, but let's uh, get down to business. I would love to chat about some of the work that you've been doing in partnership with the Dove Self-Esteem Project, Cartoon Network and Stephen Universe. So I guess to begin with, can you give our listeners a bit of a top line on the two interventions? Of course. So in 2018, Dove partnered with Cartoon Network and the animated series Steven Universe to develop a series of digital tools that promote body image among children and adolescents. And the tools include six brief animated films, a song and music video titled We Deserve to Shine, and an ebook titled Your Magic Mind and Body. And what sets this collection of tools apart from other children's media is that it's evidence-based and it includes content that's shown to improve body image among children and adolescents. And they're also designed to be disseminated through various digital platforms, such as social media. Uh, So maybe YouTube, you might have seen some of the content on there. And this makes the material really accessible and highly scalable. So today we're going to give you a bit more information on two of the um, research projects that Harriet and I have been working on, which is the brief animations and the ebook. Super. And this term was new to me, but I know we refer to both as micro interventions. So I wonder if you could explain what a micro intervention is. Yeah, sure. It's actually a relatively new term that's been cropping up within the adult mental health literature. And it's used to describe brief, immediately actionable therapeutic techniques that provide rapid improvements in state-based symptoms. In other words, the technique is designed to be completed in a short period of time, say two to 10 minutes. And after engaging with these materials, we expect the users to experience immediate improvements in how they're feeling. So that's what we refer to as state-based changes. And so micro-interventions are designed to usually be digital and self-guided, and this makes them quite accessible and scalable because they don't rely on health professionals to administer them. It just relies on the individual engaging in the content. So far, micro-interventions have been tried and tested with adult samples Mm -hmm. using digital writing tasks and instructional audios and videos, 
but little attention's actually been given to how we could apply this intervention model to young people, which is surprising given that this intervention model is very conducive to young people's lifestyles and learning environments. You know, we know that young people are constantly engaged with digital environments. So I think it's um, roughly 93% of 8 to 11-year-olds spend 13.5 hours a week online. 12 to 15-year-olds spend 20 uh I think 20 and a half hours a week. So this is a lot of time that they're plugged into digital environments. So we really need to capitalize uh, on this space and how we can use it to disseminate and create um, mental health resources. Yeah, well, that really is a lot, isn't it? And I think that's a really helpful, clear explanation. So then just the follow-up to that is what's the role of micro-interventions within like the ecosystem of interventions? Yeah. So it's becoming widely accepted among researchers and clinicians that global mental health concerns are never going to be met by our current health professionals and services. And Alan Kasdan, who's an esteemed professor from Yale University, has published a number of articles that is encouraging researchers to explore novel ways of disseminating mental health resources, particularly methods that allow for scalability. So breaking down those barriers to accessing mental, accessing mental health resources. And this is really important when it comes to body image research because we're looking for ways to reduce body dissatisfaction, which we know is a normative discontent that is observed globally across uh, the lifespan. And, you know, traditionally, body image interventions have been targeted with face-to-face interventions, which require significant human, financial, and time research, uh, resources. And this intervention model might be unsuitable or unnecessary for people who maybe experience more milder body image concerns, and they might uh, only need, you know, lower intensity interventions. And that's where we kind of cue micro interventions Mm -hmm. because they're designed to be low dose, low intensity and really digestible in the moment. Um, And because they're digital based and self-guided, this makes them much more easier to kind of be designed to to be at scale and provide that wide scale care for individuals. Yeah, brilliant. That's really helpful. And I, I like the expression that we use a lot within our team with light touch for the micro-interventions. I think that's a a helpful way of thinking about it. So let's bring it back to the intervention, the Stephen Universe intervention, so the e-book and the short animation films. I wonder if you could explain what are the key themes within each? Like, What are they trying to convey? What do they want to shift within the child or teach the child? So the six 60-second animations were created to target key risk and protective factors for body image among children and adolescents. The six titles are Appearance Teasing and Bullying, Body Talk, Competing and Comparing Looks, Media and Celebrities, Body Functionality, and Social Media. So some of those are quite self-explanatory, but all six animations have in common is that they're usually a dialogue between two or three characters of the Steven Universe series. And the animations were broadcast on television and social media platforms in 2018. And since airing, they've actually been viewed over 14.5 million times. So again, just really highlighting kind of the scalability of these interventions 
We can embed them into various social media platforms and really get the reach uh, that we would hope when it comes to body image uh, resources. Wow, 14.5 million times. That's huge. And yeah, exactly as you say, really speaks to the scale of of what we can do with these interventions. Um, And Harriet, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the the messages within the ebook. Yeah, thank you, Nadia. So the ebook is a short story based on the children's animation series, as you said, Steven Universe, which is the same as the animations, and it's free to download. It's designed for young children around nine to 11 years old, and children are also encouraged to personalize their ebooks. So it's slightly different to the animations. Um, the children can input things like their eye colour, their favourite hobby, um, and then these examples are embedded throughout the book. So it's a really customised personal experience for the child, which I think is really, really cool. Um, the ebook was written and designed by the creator of Steven Universe, Rebecca Sugar, alongside Sigrun Daniel's daughter, and also researchers here at CAR. And the main aim was to really embed evidence-based principles of positive body image um, into the storyline and through the characters and these fall into three main themes so I'll just go through them quickly Mm -hmm. so we have the first theme which is body functionality so this is all about appreciating you know what your body does rather than focusing on solely what it looks like and there's a really nice section in the ebook well a really nice section that I like when Stephen and his friends talk about how wonderful the human body is you know it heals when it sleeps and you know it can grow a human it can grow a baby and all these wonderful things that it does. Um, The second theme fits into what we call the acceptance of diverse appearance and this is weaved in both the storyline but also reflected in the characters um, of Stephen and his friends and the third is really principles around self-care and body appreciation so this is all about respecting and looking after your body and really overall the ebook is trying to get children to you know think about and talk about their body in a more positive way. Yeah, brilliant. And I I really like the positive focus within the book and the fact that they can personalise it. I can imagine as a child being able to like engage with that and like making my own little character to take the book through. So I think that's really neat. Let's transition onto the research. I'd love us to talk through what the goal was with the research. What are you trying to find out? Presumably, do these interventions work to improve children's body confidence in some iteration? But would would love you to talk more on that and then how you tested them and what are your main findings and again Emily if you could talk about the animations and Harriet if you can go into the ebook that would be super. Mm. Sure I mean firstly starting with kind of how we applied a micro-intervention framework to these two interventions a cornerstone of micro-interventions is looking at the immediate impact that exposure to these tools has on the user so a key and common design across these two studies were you know exposing them to the tool and assessing the change in state-based outcomes pre and post exposure so that is something you'll find across all interventions that we're evaluating using a micro-intervention framework. 
So the overarching aim of both studies was looking at the immediate and short-term impact of exposure for the user. In the case of the animations, we had a wider age group. This was seven to 14-year-old boys and girls. And we were looking at the immediate, so pre and post outcomes of state body satisfaction, media literacy, and self-efficacy in dealing with teasing uh, and bullying. And the latter two outcomes were symptom-specific specific to the two animations that we tested. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, we couldn't assess the impact of all six animations due to feasibility of funding and, and timelines. So we decided to evaluate two animations. That was the appearance teasing and bullying animation and media and celebrities. So just to highlight that the appearance teasing and bullying animation is quite self-explanatory, but the media and celebrities animation uh, discussed the unrealistic nature of idolized social media images and the negative effects uh, associated with viewing and comparing yourself to these uh, mm -hmm. this type of content. So we compared the impact that viewing these uh, two animations had on state-based outcomes as well as trait-based outcomes. And this was assessed uh, one week later. So we're looking for more of that short-term uh, impact. And we compared those two interventions to a control condition, which included uh, Steven Universe characters. So we controlled for um, this kind of content that children were exposed to. But the control animation had no explicit discussions around body image. Uh, what the children viewed were Steven uh, Universe characters engaging in recreational activities such as ball games, um, card games, cooking, etc. And so really the only thing that differed between the control and the two intervention animations was that explicit discussion of body image. Super. And what did you find? So, excitingly, the research was just published in Body Image, and what we found was that the two intervention conditions were comparably effective to the control condition at eliciting state-based and trait-based changes in Body Image. This was particularly prevalent for the younger age group of 7 to 10-year-olds versus 11 to 14-year-olds. And we kind of attribute these, these findings to the diverse and inclusive appearances of Steven Universe characters that were observed across all animations. And this is a finding that's been observed in older populations when it comes to positive exposure effects of viewing more diverse appearances than, you know, the idealistic appearances we see traditionally in media. And this hasn't been explored among children before. So this is the first of its findings. So, it was quite interesting to set out with a hypothesis that we would see, you know, specific intervention effects relating to those two intervention animations, when in actual fact, we found uh, comparable effects of the control condition. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting with what you're saying about the influence of diverse characters just within the cartoon itself. And the fact that diversity within a cartoon form still translates to children and how they're thinking about diversity as well and and that is is a really interesting finding and I think also just to say thank you for explaining the method so clearly because I think that's something it's like the rigor that goes into all of this work is so important and I think sometimes that's very easy to get glazed over but actually to really get to the core of like does this work or not you have to be so precise and have put so much thought into working out whether it works it's not just about asking the kid like did you like this do you feel better <laughs> 
Mm. And there's, you know, it's not enough for children to like the content in order for it to be effective. And that's really important. So, you know, we did get really positive feedback that all the children, whether they were Steven Universe uh, fans or not, they did really enjoy the content. But that doesn't mean it's going to change their attitudes about themselves or about other individuals. Mm -hmm. And so it was really important to understand how much impact these very brief, and I'm talking 60 seconds exposure, Mm -hmm. uh, would have on their immediate well-being, but also uh, a shorter term impact. And it's really promising. It's the first study of its kind to explicitly apply a micro-intervention framework to children's um, interventions and found it to be uh, somewhat effective. I think even though we didn't necessarily find those specific intervention effects, it is telling us something about this modality and, and how it can be influential to young people. For sure. That's really promising, as you say, and, and exciting to kind of explore that more. Um, Harriet, I wonder if you could give us a little run through on the ebook. Yeah, of course. Um, so the way that we evaluated the ebook was face to face rather than online as per mm-hmm. the animations. Um, and essentially we wanted to see if, you know, reading your magic mind and body was effective at improving children's body image and mood relative to an ebook that had no body image content. So as Emily said, we always use a control group. And for this study, we chose an ebook that was just a normal children's adventure ebook, which was called Samwoo is Not Afraid of Anything. And this was the shark installment where Samwoo and his friends just go on an adventure, um, have fun, go to a birthday party, and there's no discussion around body image or any of the content okay. that um, was in Your Magic Mind and Body. So by doing this, then we can compare the results of both groups and hope that any change or improvement that we see is due to the evidence-based content in your magic mind and body. So we went into primary schools on three different occasions and then each visit was one week apart. Um, At week one, we asked the children to complete a questionnaire and this just included trait measures, as Emily has explained, um, Mm -hmm. of body image. At week two, so this was a week later, children independently read their assigned ebook. So they were randomised to read Your Magic Mind and Body or Samwoo. And then immediately before and after reading that, we asked them to answer some questions about body image and mood. So that's the pre and post exposure that Emily was talking about. And then at week three, which was our follow up, the children completed their trait measures again, which was the exact same format as what we did at week one. Super. And again, I just think thank you for explaining that so clearly with the method and the importance of the control, because it's so central to the work that we do. But again, I think it's something that kind of gets glossed over when we're just talking about findings. Which brings me on, what did you find? What did you find with the ebook? So we found that for boys and girls, reading Your Magic Mind and Body did significantly improve children's body esteem. And this is a global, more holistic measure of sort of general body image. But unfortunately, reading Your Magic Mind and Body had no effect on our other two trait measures, which were more specific positive body image measures. So this was self-objectification and body appreciation. And as for our state measures, so the pre and post measures that we did before and after reading, we found that reading our body image ebook led to immediate improvements in body satisfaction as well as mood. Okay, but so 
I'm just thinking, so you found positive effects on body esteem and then on body satisfaction, but not on self-objectification and body appreciation. So do you do you have a thought of why that might be? Do you think that the those measures are too complex for that age group or do you have other ideas? I'm very curious. I think that's a really, really good question. And I think that speaks to the maybe an issue within the field more widely rather than just this specific study. For, so to start, we were actually really surprised that your magic mind and body did not elicit any changes in body appreciation, which mm-hmm. is one of the main principles that the book was based on. Um, however, after looking at the literature, this is actually quite a common finding across these studies that have looked at this construct, especially in younger populations. And we thought that, you know, it might be that body appreciation specifically might be quite an abstract concept for children to understand. And, you know, talking to them about respecting your body and appreciating your body, do they actually understand what those words mean and what Mm -hmm. it means to do those things? So we thought that, you know, having a facilitated discussion around these concepts might make the storyline and, you know, the concepts of positive body image more salient to them. Yeah, that's just so interesting to think about. And then also the other thing that I was thinking as you were explaining that all is that body esteem is, is as you said, Harriet, is a holistic construct of, of body image that so captures some of that positive body image element anyway. So I don't think it's any great loss that there weren't big improvements in self-objectification and body appreciation. I really think that actually it feels more meaningful to me as, as someone not involved in the project to to see that there was improvements on body esteem because that is a more holistic construct and actually to see a shift there is an important finding I think and feels very promising. Um, I mean I feel like we've gone into all of it in quite a lot of detail. Is there anything more to add? The only thing that I was thinking is that when you kind of juxtapose the two studies side by side mm. um the ebook kind of supports the notion that exposing young people to diverse characters um, without body image content is sufficient mm-hmm. at eliciting positive imp- at positive impact because Sam Wu didn't elicit any body image yeah. specific changes, but um, and the Sam Wu book did not have any uh, appearance diversity. Definitely. It was yeah. you know five characters of very thin appearances, one bo- mm-hmm. one girl one girl four boys and so I think that that further supports the notion that when you have characters of different body sizes shapes gender orientation Mm -hmm. different hair color facial features that really does have an implicit impact on young people yeah super this has been so interesting to get into and and understand more and I really appreciate both of you like really kind of laying it out and spelling it out for me and for for the listeners and I guess the the final question I'm thinking in regards to both of the interventions is what do you see the role of both of them being how do you see them being used and um well yeah I guess that's it how do you see them both being used yeah I mean I think what we've really highlighted is that these tools can be easily embedded into young people's environments. Mm-hmm. A lot of research has focused on the negative effects associated with engaging in digital environments such as social media and and what we've shown is that embedding interventions into these digital environments 
they can actually disrupt the plethora of harmful media as well as teach and prompt uh, young people to engage in coping strategies that they might forget if they're not presented uh, immediately there in front of them within their environment. So I think that this is just a really logical step for our research field uh, to explore. But also in terms of you know other environments it might be incorporating the ebook into you know school curriculums and national reading lists it's quite interesting that you know the uk had a national um, survey out last year that highlights the prevalence of body image concerns among children Mm -hmm. but a number of the national reading lists that that are out there for mental health resources don't actually include any body image uh, content So this would be a really lovely example of how we could incorporate that on a national level um, and into a more formal setting. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that it's free to download and especially given the current climate that we're in, like having something that's digital that kids can do at home, even within their like broader school work, I think is really, really important and really powerful. And I guess the other thing that I'm really thinking of throughout this whole conversation and is, is the power of appearance diversity within children's media is a really positive way to go particularly for this younger age group I mean I think it's it's the same across the board because I think having appearance diversity in adult media is great for for us right but I think just to show that that translates for children and it translates in cartoon form within these digital formats is is a big takeaway that we can look at more broadly so Thank you both so much for, for explaining all of that to me and, and to our listeners. I think it's been really helpful and I think people are going to really enjoy like getting into the the science of it all. But I can't let you go, and you know what's coming, but I can't let you go before um, we end on our famous cake question. It's a little abstract now, uh, given that we're seven months, is it seven months in that we're, we're working from home? Um, so I feel like we have to end with maybe just the two of you talking about what your favourite cake is, so we can just imagine what it might be like. Yeah, thanks, Nadia. It's been so lovely to talk to you and to talk about these projects. But for the most important question, cake. Mm -hmm. So Emily and I have ongoing debate about our likes (laughs) and our dislikes with cake. So whatever I like, Emily hates. So in true form, my cake would be Battenberg cake. Ooh. And in, oh, oh. see. <laughs> and in case you don't know what it is, it's like a rectangle cake and it's like pink and yellow squares. It's got apricot jam and it's covered in marzipan, which I love, which Emily hates. And my nan always used to have this in her house. And when I used to go and stay, I used to take the biggest chunks out of it and eat it all. So it always reminds me of her. So that's my favourite. You know what, Harriet? I don't think we've ever had Battenberg cake on the podcast in five years of this podcast being going out. I don't think we've ever had Battenberg. So well done. I feel like that's because no one likes it. (laughs) I thought that was coming as as those words left my mouth. I was like, oh, Emily's going to be in there. Um... (laughs) I mean, it's very good that Harriet and I have such a beautiful working relationship because we disagree on so many uh, food-related topics. Um, She dislikes this suggestion that I made, which is Nigella Lawson's chocolate pavlova, but I only like it when my mum makes it. So I'm hoping that once this 
pandemic is over, I'll be able to travel back to Australia and have my mum cook that for me. And I believe that Philippa also uh, likes this cake and has, has tried to make it and, and has kind of suggested a compet- competition of making chocolate pavlova Nigella Lawson style. Okay, I'm I'm down for that. I'm down for that. I'm trying to imagine it, a chocolate pavlova, because pavlova is meringue, right? right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Harriet, what do you not like about this concept? Is it... I think it's the mixture of, you know, the chocolate and the meringue and just... But it's chocolate-flavoured meringue. It's not chocolate... But it doesn't have marzipan. Where's the marzipan? <laughs> marzipan should be absent from all cakes. I mean, the the Battenberg is a very retro choice, but I I mean, I think it's it's a good visual also. But yeah, I think we should have it. We should have it all. And I'm looking forward to that competition. You and Philippa can do the the chocolate pavlova. I've never had it, so I'll wait before I pass any judgment. Well, brilliant. Thank you both ever so much. It's been really, really great talking with you both. Thank you so much, Nadia. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nadia. I've enjoyed it so much. That was brilliant. I just love their enthusiasm and I think they're just awesome people. Um, what an incredible set of projects. And as a reminder, both the ebook and cartoons are freely available. We will pop a link in the show notes as we always do. And as a final treat, we are going to play the audio from one of my favourite of the six cartoons on competing and comparing looks but I highly recommend watching all of them because you really need to to watch it to get the full experience they're truly brilliant hey I'm Smokey Quartz and I'm the lovely Sardonyx Sardonyx and I look pretty different she's got three gems I've got two she's got four arms I've got three her body can rotate 360 degrees hey cut just give me a minute I know this thing is about how we both have amazing bodies and stuff, but yours is obviously more amazing than mine. But that's not true. I know you look up to me. Yeah, you're 20 feet tall. But you can do things I can't do. (sighs) Like what? Like fit into your dressing room. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, you win. Or I guess I win. Hey, you think there's still time for my triple-handed yo-yo tricks? I hope so. I'd hate to think comparing yourself to me might have hurt your chance for you to be you. Let's get back out there. Uh, A little help? Please don't film this. That was lovely. What a really great episode. And a big thank you to both Emily and Harriet for joining us this episode and sharing all the great projects that they're working on. Yeah, absolutely. And so... All's left to say is thank you so much for listening. You know the drill. Rate, review, subscribe and join us next time.